And I'm just going to quickly review where we were. So if you want to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 13 and 14. And remember, if the last time, which was so long ago, it's like I forgot what I said, but I did look it up in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, one of the things, if you remember, this book is so good in the fact that it, it is really set out as, a, as almost a scientific experiment where Solomon says he kept his wits about him, he kept his wisdom about him as he went to see the meaning of life. And so out of all of the books of the Bible, I think that's one of the key qualifiers here is that it really does show you where the rubber meets the road living here. You know, most of the books of the Bible show you different things about God's plan and God's heart, his mind, his character, his point of view, his plan for Israel, his plan for us, plan for salvation, all of these things. And that's, you know, how things tick. But this is in particular a book that really shows us how things work here regardless, and I want you to take this in the right way, but just think of this, regardless of whether you believe in God and his word or not. Because what he's trying to do here is trying to find in a, in a black and white and, and a peer-reviewed kind of way, because you know others have read these books and, 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 and he had people around him, I'm sure, that read, read what he wrote. This was a scientific experiment, and it's applicable to the human condition. And I think that's what this book is. So one of the ways I look at this book is, in general, there have been so many non-Christians in literature or in books about other things by people who have no clue about God, but they take counsel out of this book. And they'll actually, and I, I think I put some samples, I talked about some samples, which I don't have here, but when we first started the book, and I found it amazing. You could find quotes out of this book, and I gave you one, which everybody knows, right? Even in, in the song by the birds, to everything turn, 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 there is a season, it's right out of this book. But you look at some articles about either history or, or, or um, psychology or whatever, and you'll find references to this book throughout history. So it is amazing. This is a book that speaks to the general human condition. But having said that, it obviously points to the fact that, unfortunately, if you do not have salvation in Christ, I mean, even in the Old Testament when they were looking and believed in Messiah, everything that we can possibly do here, as the book puts it, is vanity. But a, a very good translation is uselessness. Everything we do is useless. And so it kind of warms my part because I know that, and I think everybody knows that. I think you know that too. But it's amazing how we still chase things and how they become so darn important. And even the ironic part is sometimes, and I know I've been guilty of this many times and I'm trying to get over that, pushing too hard for the things that are, we're supposed to push for. Because if you look at the way this book rolls out and the way it talks, even pushing too hard for the things that God wants you to do and push for ends up in vanity. Look at this man's life. Look how hard he pushed. Obviously, God wanted him to write this book. Look how hard he pushed. And in the end, it didn't do him any good anyway. Isn't that interesting? So that's one of the major hallmarks of this book I find interesting. But it also is pretty good that what we're going to read here is if you know this, you really don't even really need this book. I mean, it's sort of like, and I had said this when we first started the book as well, it's sort of the spoiler for a movie. <laughs> so here I'm going to spoil the whole book. After all this research... Study. Yeah, here yeah, here it is, and we can all then we can all have coffee, you know. The cliff notes, right, cliff notes right here, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he, here it is, and we'll read it. Ecclesiastes twelve, uh, verses thirteen and fourteen. So this is the end of the matter. All has been heard, and what is it? Fear God, and keep His commandments. This is great, because it says right here, it conditions it 
for this is the whole duty of man. You see, there's no qualifier here. It's the whole duty of those who are called by the Holy Spirit, either you know, pre-Christ incarnate or after as a Christian. This is what man has been designed for. Isn't that amazing? For God will bring every work into judgment, and we know that there is judgment for everybody, even Christians, except that we don't get judged unto death anymore, but we are going to be judged on what we sent up to heaven. We know that. But we know that everybody else will be judged in their own order and in their own time. But for God will bring every work into judgment with every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. It's amazing how you can read that, and it's so obvious. And yet, how many people have researched this? How many Christians have no clue what this really means? It's hard. It's hard because it's so simple. It's deceiving. But I'm going to read to you, and I, I did this back when I first started the book, which when I, we talked about this. I'm not going to go through all of it again. It's in my notes anyway. But I wanted to read you some other scriptures throughout the Bible, which says exactly the same thing. It is very simple. What is the end of the matter? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. With that as our bedrock, I'm just going to read these to you. You can turn there, but I'm going to go pretty quickly through some different scriptures. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. And first of all, it says here, and this is what I want to remember, because someone can say, and this is why I put this scripture here, someone can say, and I've heard this before, you've probably heard this before, you know what? Those things in the Old Testament, that's for Israel. We don't need that. And by the way, the Jew says, that New Testament, that's garbage. But for the Christian, there is no excuse. For the Jew, there is an excuse, because if you think about it, false religion is false religion. But for the Christian, what does it say here? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now, these things happened unto them, Israel, there's no mistake in that, by way of example, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age are come. So you see, it even says it in this, if you want to stretch the thought here a little bit, it's for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age has come. If you think about it, all is vanity and it's all ending and he's saying here, even though you're at the very tail end, when it's all going to end anyway, and everything you've done here on earth is going to amount to pretty much nothing, and yet it's for our admonition because it is for us because we are here to store treasure up in heaven where we will have life. We already have life more abundantly here, so that's it. I'm going to give you a sample of these things that happened to Israel, but this concept of what God really wanted from them. This is basically what it is. So this is only a sample. Again, there was a lot more that's in my notes. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 45 through 50. And all these curses shall come upon thee and shall pursue thee and shall overtake thee till thou be destroyed. <laughs> I'd say God is laying it on the line here for Israel, right? Then somehow they don't want it, people don't want to take God seriously when he says here, this is what I am going to do. And God himself, he says, I cause calamity. And he will use you know, nations and Satan to do it. But the point is, is he is saying, I will allow and I will be responsible for these things. Why? Why will he overtake them until they're destroyed? Because you have hearkened not unto my voice, the voice of your God, to what? Very simple. To keep his commandments and his statutes, which he commanded you. Verse 46. And they shall be upon you for a sign and for a wonder and upon thy seed forever. Verse 47, Because you served not your God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart, 
by reason of all the abundance of the things that they had around them. So we're learning from this, aren't we? Therefore, you shall serve your enemies that God will send against you. And you shall serve them in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and in want of all things. And he shall put a yoke of iron upon your neck until he has destroyed you. Now, what does Jesus say about a yoke upon our neck? And burden his light. And isn't the God of the Old Testament the Word who is actually speaking these words is the one who became Jesus Christ? You look at the gravity of the situation here and God does not change. So yet if Jesus on the one hand can come and say to us, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and yet say to them that I will put a yoke of iron on you, what does that say? Either way, you have to be rolling up to something in submission. So why not allow it? Because he says here, they had the same opportunity. Because he says here, you did not do these things in joyfulness of heart. Just do what I said for you to do. By the way, which they, like us, had to agree with in covenant. God gave them a choice. And what did they say at Mount Sinai? And then they said, oh, we're scared of you. A lot of Christians say that today. Except that sometimes they don't even say they're scared of him. Sometimes they say, Jesus, we adore you, but we don't really care what you have to say. It's the same problem. Nothing changes. Nothing. Oh, Ecclesiastes. Nothing. There you go. See, I, I, I knew you were going to say that. See, so it, it, it works. Verse 49 of Deuteronomy chapter 28. God will bring a nation against you from far, from the end of the earth, as the eagle flies, a nation whose tongue you shall not understand. Now, that's happened a couple of times today. What is the meaning of when it says the eagle flies? Well, he's saying it's going to be very swift. And that's exactly what the Babylonians did. They came in twice. And when they come in, they come in fast. And they come in hard. And even with the Assyrians, when, when there was a, a split kingdom, they come in fast. The, it, the way the Assyrians did things is they assimilate you into their culture. That's how they dilute you and destroy you that way. And they make you slaves. Babylon just destroyed everything. right? But the point is, is as the eagle flies, a nation whose tongue you shall not understand. So it without getting into the specifics of whether he's talking about the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, it doesn't matter, because this is back in Deuteronomy. This is before they split anyway. Basically what he's saying here is, however it's going to happen, it's going to be swift, and you're not going to have a chance to plan for it. You're not going to have a chance to say, I'm sorry, it's going to happen. But I'm warning you now. He says here in, in verse 50, a nation of fierce countenance that shall not regard the person of the old nor show favor to the young. These people are going to be without conscience. They will destroy you. And why? Because they refuse to obey his commandments and his keep his statutes and joyfully serve the Lord. That's how important this is. That's the end of the matter, which we're finding out was the beginning of the matter in Deuteronomy. When he's, he's taking these people, he's taking them out, and he's now, I'm going to give you how it is you're going to work with me here. Right? That's basically what Deuteronomy is about. It all boils down to this, and I want, to, I want you to think of this. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 15. After all of that whole, I'll say, because I made it into a diatribe. <laughs> but God made it very clear, right? What does he say here? He says, after all of that, I'm going to do this. If you don't do that, you're going to get taken away, all these things, right? You're going to get trounced. He says here, see, observe. I have set before you this day life and good and death and evil. Now, 
Think of this, and I jotted this down in my notes today because I didn't think of it until it hit me today. I have set before you this day, on the one hand, say on the right hand, life and good and death and evil. That's a precedent that had already been set before there was an Israel, before there was a nation. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Adam and Eve. Behold, Adam and Eve, I have set before you this day the tree of life on the one hand and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil on the other. Choose this day what you will do. And I'm thinking to myself, yep, there's another perfect example that God does not change. It is not tough to serve God. It is not really tough to know what he's doing, how he works, how he acts. And there are so many people who think, oh, I don't know God. I have no clue. I don't even, I mean, I know the Bible and I may not know God. I just don't know God. I can't figure him out, right? It's, it's very simple. Well, yeah, but exactly. But what I'm saying is the choice he gave them, which manifested as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, and they made their choice. And he'd he warned them exactly the way he warned Israel. If you even touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then, then never mind, take and eat of it, you shall surely die. He wasn't polite about it. He wasn't PC about it. Just like we read about what he said to Israel, I will destroy you and I'll use other nations to Oh, first humiliate you, and they will not even spare your old men and your children. They will destroy them and kill them outright, out of hand, and then you all will die anyway. You see, so there's not even a, a lick of mercy here. That's a God I fear, but he's making it clear. So that was verse 15. He says, see, I have set this before you, basically the same two trees, if you will, in another, man, in another, in another way, but the same concept to Israel. And he says in verse 16, in that I command you this day to what? To sacrifice all these animals? No. To take all of the clean and unclean and all the food laws? He didn't say that. What did he say? I command you this day to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances that you may live and multiply, that your God may bless you in the land where you're going. Now, for us, it's the same kind of thing because we, like Abraham, are looking for a land, a city whose builder and maker is God, right? We're not there yet. We're ambassadors here. But he's saying the same thing. You are going somewhere. So on your journey to this place, you are definitely going. I will bring you into this. You want to do it in a joyful way. You want to do it in the most efficacious way and best way for you. Here's how you do it. Now, Psalm 25, verse 10. We have to think about this, too, because you may have thought about this already, because I do. When we see in the Old Testament or anywhere where it says, keep God's commands, obey his statutes, you know, all these things, then some people will say, and understandably so, well, Israel had all these laws like we were just talking about, right? No, no, Christian doesn't have them. But actually, we have the same laws, but they're actually more pure. And if you think about it in Christ, they're much more difficult to keep. Right? Let's allow Scripture to qualify what it means to keep his commands and, and his statutes. Psalm 25 and verse 10. All the paths of God are loving kindness and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. So now we see covenant and testimonies. Now a covenant is where two parties agree. It's like a contract, right? To keep the commands that both 
set forth. So you see, he's qualifying what a command is. This is just that I want to make you suffer or I want to make you tame. So therefore, I'm going to tell you, you can eat that, you can't eat that, you can do this, you can't do that. Observe this Sabbath in this way. Uh, if you don't, you'll die. It's, this is not a game God is playing. That's the point. Because he also says later on, I don't know if I have it, the scripture here, I know I've talked about it, where he says, to, he says to them plainly, he says, what do you think I want from you? Sacrifices of animals? Is that what you think I want? You know what I'm talking about. Because he says this in scripture, and he says, no. I just want a contrite and humble or broken heart. Which really doesn't mean broken, it means humble. Isn't that the way it is for us in the New Testament? That's what he said to them. Matter of fact, the New Covenant was for them. Remember, it's for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. It was the New Covenant was for them. But to make them jealous, thankfully, we've, uh, we've been grafted in. So verse 17 of Psalm 103. But the loving kindness of God is from everlasting to everlasting upon them. Now, here's the qualifications, which means that if there are qualifications, that means God's everlasting loving kindness is not everlasting on them who do not keep these qualifications. Right? Some people might say God's mean spirit. He's not PC. But go serve Allah. See how happy he makes you. He says, so everlasting upon everlasting from them that fear him and his righteousness unto his children's children. And he says, see, well, oh, this goes back to, to Deuteronomy 28, verse 2. And all these blessings shall come upon thee and overtake thee if you shall hearken unto the voice of your God. Basically, he's, he's qualifying what I thought it said in Psalms because it follows, but it actually says it in Deuteronomy. But he says here, Deuteronomy 28, verse 3. If you do these things, keep the covenant, all these things, blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of the beasts, and the increase of cattle. And it keeps going, and going, and going, and going. But it shall come to pass, if you don't do these things, then you know the rest. So we made it clear. Remember, God does not change. And he requires no different things from us than he did to Israel. And that is the point. So that's what we can know when we look at the end of the matter, it's for anybody who decides to take on the yoke of covenant with God. That's, that's the bottom line. And we just said, which I had written down here, but we, we all just said it, that keeping this, the, the same laws, which we are keeping under Christ, is actually harder to do. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit. And we need continuous intercession. You know, Israel didn't really have that. Israel had this physical system that once a year all their sins would be paid for on the Day of Atonement. And then they had the scapegoat, you know, Azazel, which is uh, quite a name for a scapegoat, but, but that was another story. Okay, so now turn to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to go through a couple of things in 1 John. What we just read, and, and the end, I'm just making the, I'm, you see, I'm putting this big stamp, this big thrust on the end of the matter. Because as we go into the rest of this book now, we're going to have to measure everything he tells us. And he's going to tell us a lot about the human condition, a lot about what it takes to live here, a lot about a lot of different things, all of his experiments. But we have to know the end of the matter first and be sure of how God set it out. Because the only thing that makes life complicated is not really adhering to the end of the matter and knowing what God says about it. You want to obey him? Fine. What do you need to do? Well, God will tell you. Keep his commandments. Keep his statutes. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your might. That's all he wants. What, is the, what, what for us is the greatest sacrifice for God? A contrite heart. 
the circumcision of the heart. That's the whole point. In this very simple end of the matter, what, is, what are we told about it and instructed about it as Christians in the New Testament end times? John, uh, 1 John chapter 2, 4, 5, and 6. He that says, I know him and keeps not his commandments is a great guy? Must be an Israelite? No. It makes him a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whosoever keeps his word, in him, verily, has the love of God been perfected. Isn't that interesting? People can actually refuse to have the love of God perfected in them, and then that's what causes false religion and everything else. They find other ways of loving God, but they will not. They will not bend their knee to God in such a simple form. Hereby, we know by this perfected love, not being perfect, but keeping his word, which says here, is the love of God, the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in Him. What did Jesus say? The main commandment is to love God with all your heart, but love one another as I have, as I have loved you. So if someone demands of me a certain type of love that I can or cannot give, or I demand of somebody else a certain type of love, well, that may or may not be good or bad. But the point is, it's not what He's talking about. Love as I have loved you. That's what He's talking about. Complete dedication under his yoke. 1 John chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. Why? Because he really loves us? Well, why does he love us? You know, you say, why? You can ask this question, but let the scripture answer it, right? I'm being facetious here because I don't have to ask the question. Why? Because we, us, in this room, right here, right now, because we choose to and we want to and we learn from Scripture and the Holy Spirit how to do it, because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. And His commandment that we should believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, even as He gave us this commandment. Absolutely observe this commandment. And He that keeps His commandments abides in Him and He in Him. And hereby we know, we know that he abides in us by the spirit which he gave us, which he sent when he went home for us, out of love for us. Church John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. And this will be the end of the matter in the New Testament. Hereby we know that we love the children of God when we love God. Isn't that interesting? Hereby we know that we love the children of God when we love God. And what? Do his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments, listen to this, are not grievous. And yet we all agree that if you look at Jesus Christ, remember he says, you know, in your law, he says to them, in your law, you committed adultery in the act, but in the truth. The true law, the true way God looks at it, is even if you have looked upon a woman with a wink-wink, you've already sinned. So you see, it's harder because that just proves that if the Israelites can't keep the law, we certainly can't keep the law, and it's even in, even in its extended form. And here's the thing. I'm going to make this point about the Sabbath because, as you know, I used to be a Sabbath keeper by the law. Couldn't do that, but we thought we were good enough. God's merciful. So, no, you can't keep the law. And anybody who offends in one point... Is guilty of all of them, right? When we know that Jesus himself 
is the Sabbath rest? Some people might think, like especially the Jew, might think we're cheaters. But think about it. How difficult is it to try to keep a physical day of no work once a week? It's difficult, especially the way what's made it worse. These Pharisees, you know, the rabbis and all these people, they laid heavier burdens on them. Like I told you, we went to Israel and it was a Sabbath elevator. So you don't have to touch the buttons, right? You have to stop at every floor going up and down. And then you had a special, remember that, the automated Sabbath lights in the hotel rooms? <laughs> they would turn on certain lights at certain times, so you had to time yourself to, to do certain things in that room. So you would, I mean, they did that. God didn't do that. But listen, though. Jesus says that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Right? That's the first thing. The second thing he says, I am, I am, he is, the Lord of the And so, if you look at the seven-day cycle, and we've talked about this, the seven-day cycle, we have a 7,000-year history. A day is like a 1,000 years with the Lord, and a 1,000 years is like a day. So you keep that one week, the creation week, and the the Sabbath rest, and you fan that out into a full-blown time span of 7,000 years of the history of this earth. Correct? What is the 7,000-year going to be in the 7,000-year time frame of this whole experience? The millennium, the Sabbath rest, where the Lord of the Sabbath comes. I see a wow coming. Wow. <laughs> but you see how you, it clicked because God is very straightforward in how he does things. And you know what's great? When we can say wow, and we've heard these things many times, but when you make that connection, it's just yet another connection, which makes you more what? Stable in God? shows you that he really is who he is. It just solidifies everything when you look at these, what we, what we would say are nuances, but really are not nuances. This is all just fact because this is how God thinks. Okay. So now we can go back to the book. I'm really keeping on track tonight. Hey, nice. Good, huh? No prophecy stuff. You like that, huh? You like it, huh? That's right. We can talk about this stuff after we're done. All right. So we know the end of the matter. We've proved it from the Old Testament standpoint, we proved it from the New Testament standpoint. We proved it by Israel's laws and we proved it by the more stringent but non-grievous way that Jesus gave us. Isn't that interesting? So now let's go look at this. Now that we've well established the rationale of the whole thing, let's begin and look at it. Yeah, being a Christian is not an easy thing. It's not. <laughs> but it's actually... I mean, accepting Christ is an easy thing, but uh, following the rules... Mm. <laughs> right. But the thing is, that's why there's grace, because Israel could never get rid of their own sin. And, and the rabbis, and actually, no, it's the priest. The priest is, is the one who is tasked with the forgiveness of sins, with the, uh, the, the um, uh, obliteration or the, the uh, I don't want to say it, the, the obliteration of sin, I guess, or the covering of sin. Right? So that's why he has to be both. He talked about Melchizedek. And that's why he has to be both you know, the priest and he has to be the king, the line of the kings, and, and so forth. If you look at it, that's why the priest is so important. He is also our intercessor. He is our sacrifice. If you think about it, the sacrificial animal was the intercessor for the people. And the one who, who effected the, intercess- the intercessionary uh, <coughs> mechanics, the mechanics of the thing, was the the priest, the high priest, right? You know, I heard of Jewish, uh, uh, I heard Jewish people that uh, the, the priest was so scared to go into the, you know, with the blood, uh, uh, into the Holy of Holies, because uh, uh, 
he was afraid to die, that that, that would kill him. So even it says that from the from the clothes that they wore, linen, uh, to the uh, to the whole body, not only they have to be clean for one month. All they've been doing is fasting and praying that God won't kill them. Yeah. And so I hear some Jewish people say that this is this is not scriptural, but it says that uh, you know where the curtain is that was uh, that separates the holy uh, place from the holy holy. By two, yeah. Yeah. So uh, it says it was holding by nothing up in the air. It was nothing holding. Well, that, I don't know if that's true. I mean, I, that may be a, 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 a folklore kind of thing. It was actually but hung because they had to assemble a, it all. Yeah, but they said it was an opening on the bottle. Then they, yeah, it was and just they, it was they because. Used to it, put a rope on the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, I know where you're going with it. Yeah. That they, they used to put a rope on their on the feet just in case. Yeah, but I also heard that you know on, on the on the the prayer thing, the tasslet they call it, they put little bells on there too because if he stopped moving, oh, yeah. Yeah. then they then they have a reason to pull him out on that rope. <laughs> right, right. Did you know by the way the the um, the container for the blood for the sacrifice? Do you know that the the new one they made, which is supposedly like the ones that that were used in the original temples, it has a rounded bottom. It's like a, a basin or something. No, no, but I'm not talking about the basin. I'm talking about the actual where they take the blood and bring it into the whole hole oh, support. Oh, yeah, yeah. They actually, it's a rounded bottom because they do not want to accidentally set it down. Because they, it, now again, I don't know the, the reason, I mean, I know the reasoning, but I don't know how it got to that. But they cannot set it down. And I don't even, I don't think this specification is in Scripture for it, but... They made it round so that once the high priest puts blood in it, and if he tries to set it down, it would, it would spill. So he can't even accidentally let go of that until the sacrifice or the blood is complete. Hmm. But think sense. of it. it well, it, make, it does make a lot of sense because if you look at all the liturgy of the temple pointed to Christ, yeah. everything they did. Matter of fact, the last time we were together, I told you the whole uh, things and, 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 and uh, implements and, and the pathway from the outer court, from the outside to the outer court of the Gentiles all the way in, and you, it's in my notes, if you want to take a look at it, in, in the early part of volume one of my notes, it's all there, and it shows you how everything is set up as a timeline for Christ, and also what Christ is for us, from the outer court of the Gentiles all the way into the Holy of Holies, and inside that, that Ark of the Covenant where the Ten Commandments are, in the heart of the temple. Isn't that interesting? That the manner, the provisions in the heart yeah. of Christ... Those Ten Commandments are the heart, the end of the matter, right here. So it's interesting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. All right, <clears throat> first, we're going to look Wait at... Wait a minute, they considered that the blood that was carried was pure blood. It was they from the animal. Be put down, they can't put uh, the... They can't put be put down. It's just like saying Christ's blood, because it's not like man's blood. And, um, uh, but, the, but there, the power, the power was in the blood. Well, that's what they're basically saying, and, and, and so you're right. So what they're saying is that... Is the blood is the is the actual meaningful part of the whole thing? Remember, they said, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Right. So we they knew that. I mean, that's what it's all about. I mean, right. So even from Adam, when God made them, remember they made their own fig leaves to cover themselves when they all of a sudden knew they were naked. And part of the problem for Cain was that he sacrificed vegetation. And Adam and Eve covered themselves with vegetation. But the problem with that is there is no blood in vegetation. That was a problem. So God himself created the first sacrifice when he killed the animals to make the garments. And I, and I told you that uh, those, those loin coverings, those coverings that he made, then had some, 
in the mysticism, mystical powers, and supposedly made it onto the yard. I mean, the uh, Noah's Ark, yeah. And then the Noah's Ark. So there's a lot of, and then the Holy Grail. He bought the lamb for sacrifice. Right, yeah. Well, we, it was probably a lamb. You're, you're probably right. I think it was a lamb that he sacrificed and made the skins for, for Adam and Eve. But anyway, it's, 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 see, but the whole thing is that no matter how we talk about it, it doesn't change. If we know what Scripture says and we know we are Christians, we have the Holy Spirit built in can no matter, you can put your finger through the Bible and stop somewhere and read it and pretty much put your finger anywhere else in the Bible and stop. And, and if, you, if, you, if you're talking about the same thing, you're always talking about apples and apples. Oranges are, in the Old Testament are always oranges in the New Testament. It's just that the surrounding events might change. The surrounding um, uh, layers of pomp and circumstances around it might change. But when God says the, uh, not only is there no remission of sins when there is no shedding of blood, but he also says that the life is in the blood. That's why they weren't allowed to drink the blood and all that stuff. But the point is, is you, you look at those two things right there and you know that, well, blood must mean something to God. And then, by the way, we know today, because of the scientific capabilities we have, what really blood is about. It's an amazing substance, right? So there's something connected to blood that is very dear and very, very, a very key creation of God. It well, doesn't... It, well, yeah, but, but when we look at now with science, how it actually works, it is absolutely amazing. And you never get to the bottom of the physiology of how these things work. So, anyway, let's get to the Ecclesiastes. So now that we've established all this, and I'm glad we did, I hope we, this was all um, driving home the point of the end of the matter. And let's now look at how the book rolls out. First, Ecclesiastes deals with these ten vanities. Does anybody sound familiar? The ten vanities. Let's listen to what these are, and um, you can either jot it down or send my notes, which I'll be posting. So I think, actually, these may be already up there, but they'll be up there next week. Remember, vanity isn't like a woman looking in the mirror and saying, oh, I'm beautiful, you know, or like narcissism, you know, the, the looking in the pond and saying, I'm a gorgeous Adonis. I personally never experienced something that great. But that's not the point. <laughs> the point is that vanity does not mean that. What vanity means is uselessness. You've heard of it where it says in Proverbs, people don't just talk in vain babblings, right? Don't look at me so like that, Ben. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So if you have a van, huh? Yeah, same thing. Futility, uselessness. It means it all, it, it's any way you can say it, it all means that it all amounts to nothing. <laughs> it's like being stuck in the mud with your car. No matter how powerful an engine you have and nice grippy old tires, if you're, if you're stuck, you, you could power all, channel all that power, have a full tank of fuel, power, channel all that power to wheels. It's not going to make a difference. Matter of fact, you're probably going to dig yourself in deeper. So, you know. Okay, so here are the 10 vanities. Okay. First, this is great. I mean, we all know these, but I want you to really think about them. The first is human wisdom. Both the wise and the foolish are going to die, and nothing lasts. And you see what the Bible says about wisdom. If it's not wisdom of God, it is worse than nothing. It is dangerous. That's why you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Wisdom, apart from God's wisdom, is not only amounts to nothing, 
at the end when it's all said and done, but it is absolutely dangerous. Look at the world around us. There's a lot of smart people that do a lot of smart things. The second, human labor. The worker is no better than the layabout in the end. Death equalizes them all. Now, I, I wouldn't go f that far where because we also know that work is necessary. So that's not what he's saying here. Okay, Obviously, I don't have to explain that. But what he's saying here, again, he's looking at the uselessness of it. Labor is good because, first of all, you want to eat. And it's, Scripture tells us those who don't work shouldn't eat. So those who play golf, as long as they work, they play, play golf. But you can play golf after you're done working. <laughs> you could argue that golf is work. <laughs> yes, you could, depending on how good. Yes, you're right. Absolutely. That's yep. pressure. That's, That's pressure. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> good point. So human labor, labor again, not, not judging the labor itself, but the fact that the wise and the foolish in the end have the same fate. The laborer and the layabout have the same fate. This is what he's talking about, the ten useless things, the ten futilities. And, and remember, what he's saying is these are the ten major concentration points of every single human being. These are the ten things that most human beings encounter in this life. You're born, you're going to learn things, you're going you're to be able to do things, and with your wisdom or what you learn, you may be able to do labor better, right? Or, or because of somebody else's wisdom, you may be able to labor more efficiently. It all interconnects, but these are all ten things that human beings subsist on. And this is the basis of his scientific experiment, which I think is very key. He's really boiled this down to the most important things that any human being can do to see if there's any value in any of it. And also, remember what he's talking about, no animals can do. This is something particular to the human being who's made in God's image. And by the way, we also know that these ten things, God also deals with at his level. I'm just saying, if we're made in his image and he's concentrating on, on being human, and this is what this book is about, right? So he's just trying to discover if any of these things have, have any value. Well, wisdom, in the end, it, the great equalizer will make you just as bad as the foolish. Human labor, in the end. How many people have left mansions? In fact, we went to Rollinsford last night. We went around by the old mill in Rollinsford there because I love those old mills. And we went in there. We were walking, looking at the old pictures they have in there. And all of these laborers, all of these people, all of these. And then there's a mansion up at the top of the hill where the, um, the uh, company housing that used to be company housing, now they're apartments, right? And there's, we talked about that mansion. But the people who built these things, the people who had the money, the people who had the expertise, the groaning, grunting laborer to the high muckety-muck who lived in the mansion, they're all dead now. And they left it all to somebody else. Right? And it's a, it's a fond memory, but that's all you get. So the first is... That's right. That's right. And they're just beautiful office buildings or complex. Or in places like Lowell, they're just derelict. And, and we shipped all of this overseas. You're right, absolutely right. Human wisdom, human labor. And then three is human purpose. Man proposes, but God and only God determines. Now, there's a couple of scriptures that come to mind right away. The first one is, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end thereof is death. God also says that man's wisdom is as filthy rags as compared to his, right? Then God also challenges people in scripture and says, you fool. You think that I am altogether like you. Doesn't he say that? I'd say there's a great disparity, and God makes it clear. But man's, uh, man proposes, but God does also. There's a concept that I know I think about a lot more these days 
not just recently, but I mean in these last couple of years, more than ever before, understanding God and how he works, there's this, this dividing line. And we're going to talk about it a little bit, not tonight, but later on, next class probably, where God is sovereign, but there is also man's responsibility. And God has made it so. Remember, God even says, I can raise stones to do my work. I don't need you. But he chooses to use us as tools, which means he also chooses to give us a choice. And not only accepting him and Christ and all that stuff, but he also gives us a choice in what we decide to do, what we decide not to do, and how we decide to do it. And many times he will allow us to have our folly, and he will steer us in the right direction. But a lot of times... Our responsibility does color how things are going to work out. What I'm saying is there seems to be more people who call themselves Christians today that are more aligning themselves with fatalism than with you have to do something. And whether God determines it's his will or not, you may not know right away. There are some people who, I guess what I'm saying is they either say, I can't do anything because God has to do it all. And are they wrong? No, they're right. But that's not the point. The point is, is what does God mean for you in this division between sovereignty and your responsibility, my responsibility? You don't need me to teach you these scriptures. You don't. But I'm glad that I was given this job and you're here and, and he's given me the ability to interpret things because otherwise I'd be just as lost as anybody else and I didn't have to go to seminary and you don't have to either. But I could read the same scriptures to a learned rabbi, and that learned rabbi would not understand. But who am I? Who are you to understand? It's because we, though, have to put in the work to show our desire to keep that covenant, to keep his law, to keep his commandments. And then he'll do his will anyway. So that's the point. That's right. That's right. But the whole point is this, like it says in uh, Second Timothy? First or Second Timothy? Anyway, I know the scripture, and I'll tell you it. Study to show yourself approved. A workman that needs not be ashamed, because there will be people, even in the judgment for Christians, that are going to be ashamed on the day when they knew they were going to come and meet Christ face to face. I want to hear, and you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And not everybody's going to hear that. The worst of them are going to be the tares who are going to say, depart from me, I never knew you, and they're going to hell. But there are going to be plenty of Christians who are saved because they truly are saved in Christ, but only because of his salvation and his blood are they going to make it by the skinny skin skin of their teeth. They're not going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So that's my point. But here, he's saying here, so we have, to, we have to understand that, that man's purpose, man proposes, but God determines. We have to figure that out. He's going to try to... Make, is that a scripture? No, these are the ten vanities. Yeah, I'm sorry, man proposes and God determines. I get these from different sources. This, this actually I got from um, a little thing about the book from, um, what's his name? The guy that did the five-year Bible, McGee. Because he summarized it very nicely. So, yeah, yeah. No, no, but if you, but well, but these, but these are ten vanities: wisdom, labor, purpose, rivalry. These are all there. You just have to distill them into a teaching. It's like if you look at a science or any paper, you you, you can distill it into its parts. Where the the scriptures, you notice, does not have, um, you know, chapter and then you know heading one, heading two, heading three, sort of like the documents we know today. 
and there's no diagrams, there's no, there's no uh, uh, measurements, there's not, it's just, it's, it reads like a novel, and it's very difficult to read, so you have to ferret these things out, and only the Holy Spirit can do it for you, but yeah, so there are ten vanities, the th so that's the third, the fourth is human rivalry, we'll get, we'll get finished after we summarize the ten, if we can go, if you want, human rivalry, think of this, everybody wants to, you know, it's dog eat dog world, we know about that, but success brings more envy than joy in many instances. It's just success breeds more. Like remember the old commercial we talked about the other day, remember? There's an old commercial about some company that's going to give you a loan or help you alleviate your debt. And you see this guy with a perfect wife, a perfect home. He's driving a perfect John Deere tractor on his perfect lawn. And he's got this big cookie-eating grin on his face. And he's keeping up with the Joneses. And it's all beautiful. And he's driving his nice new tractor on his nicely mowed lawn. And he says... Somebody help me. He's overextended. He can't pay for what he has. But he's got the look of success. And at least he earns enough money to even get into debt. Some people don't even earn enough money to actually get into debt to even look like they're successful, right? So you know what I'm saying. But it says here, you know, success brings more envy than joy. And as saw us, what was it now? Let me think about this. Yes, I think it said it in Proverbs. Better is a little and good sleep at night than a lot and worry. All right. You know what I'm talking about. I can't place it in my mind where it is in Scripture, but it is there because that is true. I would rather have less or at least what I have, you know, that I can say I can afford it or whatever easily enough without having to worry. We're, we're, that's the point, right? Okay, so we have the first is wisdom, human wisdom. Second is human labor. Third is purpose, human purpose. Fourth is human rivalry. The fifth is greed, which really, if you think about it, can generate the others. It can be an outgrowth. It's sort of like greed can be uh, the, 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 uh, the mechanism that drives all of the others, right? You said greed? Greed. Oh, greed. Greed. And just as number four, gain feeds more lust for more, right? There are people who are so greedy. You ever, ever hear the old adage? Not the adage, but the old thing is true. You can ask waiters and waitresses and, and, or look at comments online about people and, and who've worked as waiters and waitresses and so forth, and I've done that. And they'll tell you, the people who come into the high-end restaurants who can afford to buy these high-end meals, they're the worst tippers than people like you and I. Yes. <laughs> right. Why? It's not only it's greed, but they couldn't care less about you because it's all about them. Greed also produces this vainness in us as does possessions and other things, especially if we think it's our wisdom and our savvy that developed it all. Hey, I did it all. I don't need you. I got it. I got to go. I don't need you. That's what it's all about. Look at how the world works. and It's crashing around us. And they don't care about us. They care about getting more. And greed, you know, there's enough. It, oh, I just heard it the other day. I got I to gotta get the scripture for you for next week because I, I just don't know where it is. But it says in scripture, there are three things that are never quenched that never say enough. Fire. Oh, I know fire is one of them. I'll get it for you. I'll get you because this was a great scripture. When I heard, when I, I heard it the other day, and I looked. I, at, I heard that. Yeah. I that truth. fire needs more and more. It never says, "I'm good. I'm not going to consume anything more, even though it's available to me." And isn't that the amazing thing that God uses fire to totally consume? Matter of fact, what does God say about Himself? He is a consuming. consuming fire. Well, greed is a consuming fire. How about fame? 
brief, uncertain, and soon forgotten. It's like that old song I, I said it the other time when we were together. Greed, greed, just gain, greed or gain, uh, gain just feeds more lust for more gain. It's, it's like item number four, success brings more envy than joy. It's, it's, it's the same thing. It's in my notes, so you can download the notes. Um, but fame. The, everybody loves you until somebody new comes along. Johnny, come lately. <laughs> You're the new kid in town. You remember that song? About 10 years after the bird song about uh, there's a time and season for everything. You know. All right, seven. Human insatiety. Money never satisfies and like fame and greed fuels the need for other desires. Money. You remember that Maslow pyramid I've talked to you about? As you achieve, and you see this, we, I gave you examples of it, as you achieve the next level, you never say, I'm satisfied. Isn't that what Paul made it clear? That's greed. He ha- right. But he had to learn. It's a learned skill to find contentment in whatever situation you're in. You see the difference here? It's natural to not find contentment in anything. It's just natural. Human nature says it, and Satan is more than happy to help us not find contentment in anything. But so Paul says, I have had to learn. That's why we have books like this. That's why we have Paul. You have to want to achieve it, and the only way you can achieve it is to learn how it works, because it's not natural. That's the point. Go ahead. I don't think so, but it looks good. Yes, yes. Slow down, slow down. Thank you. That's just a continuation of. So the womb, go back to the beginning of it. No, go back to the very beginning. There are three, yes, four. Never have enough. Read it. Okay, stop right there. Does the grave ever say, I don't need any more dead, stop sending them to me? No. Oh, yes. The barren womb is never dead? satisfied. Yeah, the okay. grave. Yeah, yeah, okay, next, yeah. go ahead, next Third, one. that is never satisfied with water. Mm-hmm. And fire that uh, never stops burning. burning. Yeah. Thank you. We actually rehearsed this before you came. <laughs> She's always backing up. She's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> no, no, don't back up. That's why you have spider marks on his That's right. Um, anyway, human insatiety, uh, number eight, human coveting. Gain is not enjoyed as seemingly met desires are never sustained. Ever watch Star Trek? Yeah. Wise Mr. Spock. And he had one thing, or well, many things, but one of the things I'll never forget, even when I was a kid, and I thought, I thought this was really cool, what he said. It was an episode where he finally achieved something, and he said, he found out that, oh, it was when he battled Kirk for his love. Remember, he had, they had a form of... Well, because you, you live that way. <laughs> but far be it for me to tell tales out of school. No, he... <laughs> He I was battling. Get, get, yeah, I don't want to get. Yeah, she, 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 she knows proverbs. <laughs> <laughs> and she knows 
your secret. That, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. So anyway, so uh, he um, he's fighting Kirk. They go mad, and so they have a heat because they're not supposed to have emotions. So something has to drive them to procreate. But he, you know, remember Spock did have emotions. He had a human mother, hybrid, by the way. But that's another story. Wink, wink, wink. But I thought he was but, fighting for that woman. Yeah, he was. Okay. But he was in a state of madness. And remember, she w- calculated to bring Jim Kirk in, saying she wanted Kirk to be her husband, so he had to fight him, so that she could have him, dis- Kirk, destroyed, and she wouldn't marry him, so she'd get the love she wanted. It was all this twisted love affair thing. But the point is, after all of it was done, and remember Bones, who was the medic, had to inject uh, uh, Kirk with something that made him act as if he were dead so that Spock would stop chasing him around trying to kill him. And so when Spock thought he was dead, and he had to think he was dead for quite a while, his sanity came back, and he realized what he had killed his friend. Remember, he had emotions, so he did have the concept of friendship. Anyway, after all of this, and then he figured now he can have his love, who he was willing to kill for, and he said... Having is not so pleasing as wanting. And that's what it's saying right here. You ever want something so much, you can smell it and taste it. Oh, finally had that. And then when you finally actually get it, well, either you like it, but it's not so great, you know? And then then you get a new car, you get scratched. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. She was hankering for hindering. No, you weren't even hankering for it. That was at Folgers when we took that walk. Fogarty's, yes. Maybe they have Folgers coffee. Okay, so let me finish this up. Come on. Human coveting. Even this, human lightheartedness, frivolity, happiness, serves only to mask the inevitable and unchanging endgame. We all, we're all headed to something. And if something that we would consider bad as human beings hasn't happened to us yet, it will. Right? And so when you see people who are so happy, and that, let's face it, that's what sells, right? Everybody on TV is young and happy or middle-aged and happy. and Even with everything crashing around us, they're always happy. But if you ever look at a tabloid and look at some of these people who are happy all the time, life, life, they're the saddest and most miserable of all. That's right. And a lot of times, comedians get their best material from tragedy because tragedy is usually the best food to feed comedy. Isn't that true? So that's nine. The final one, human awards, accolades, and affirmations. The award-winning, Ben. Okay, the award-winning, Rebecca. But, you know, all these things are great. I don't know what you want an award for. I didn't really give you one. I can't give you any awards. I don't have anything to give you. But human awards and accolades and affirmations for doing good or even doing bad. Now, you know, there are people who are rewarded very well for doing bad. That's right. So don't kill anymore, Felicia. I'm going to dig around your property and find... He needed killing. I just killed some ants, and I felt so... You felt bad? (laughs) (laughs) I don't go that far. (laughs) I'd kill a fly for you. I do. (laughs) Anyway, and it says here, and now, and this is what I wrote here, because this is really key. If you think about it, we, we can guess that, you know, affirmations and accolades for doing good or even doing bad. We, we understand it. We see how that works. But now more than ever, there is reward for mediocrity. You're no good unless you're not that good. And you're not that bad. You're just okay. You notice that? 
Because of this and the fact that these usually feed chasing after the other nine of points that we made before, because we all want to feel good and we all want to be made to feel valuable, and that's not bad. That's good. As a matter of fact, doesn't our God compliment us when we do well? He's not so quick to punish a lot of times. And we may look at God with a jaundiced eye because we see the, you know, thou shalt not and thou shalt not. So what about all of the grace? What about when Jesus met that woman at the well? He didn't give her accolades, but he made her feel valuable. Even though he said, go and sin no more. You've lived a life of sin. That's what he's done with us and me. But for the human being, that is not good enough. You have to tell me, Jesus, you know, Mike, you're good. You're really good. That'll float my boat. Well, he doesn't do that. But what he actually does tell me is, I think he feels I'm doing an okay job with what he's given me. I think he does. I, I feel that. I don't feel, I mean, I, but I know, I know what's good is I do not have to be perfect. And you don't have to be perfect either. So these are the kind of accolades and, and awards that we get that he loved us so much that he called us from nothing. He adopted us from nothing. And as he said to Israel, I will accomplish this in you and me, not for your sake, but for my name's sake. That's, a, that's affirmation enough for me, to, for me to be even thought valuable enough to know anything that this book says. I'm having come from nothing, or worse, a cult. Right? Vanity of life is a key theme throughout Scripture, and these ten things map into it. So I'm going to read you one more scripture and then we'll be done. As a matter of fact, there is a major purpose behind God making it so. Making vanity a key. And, and listen to what God says about this. And this is a, a far-flung, far, you know, far-hidden scripture that nobody really thinks about too much. The book of Habakkuk. Chapter 2 and verse 13. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity or uselessness. Let me read that again. Mm -hmm. Behold, look, observe carefully. Is it not of the Lord of hosts? So is it not coming from God's hand that the people should labor in the very fire? Most of the time, you know, your labor is hard labor, right? Remember, isn't that the curse on Adam? So is it not of the Lord? Didn't he commit Adam to labor? Didn't those crown of thorns as Jesus labored to pay the price for human sin as the next king of the world, that he was human? Remember, the whole point of Adam was that he was supposed to labor heavy and the ground would not yield its fruit so easily. It would yield thorns and thistles. And what was on Jesus' head as a crown? Pears and pomegranates? In labor, he had to make that sacrifice to save us. That's the point. So he says, Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire? And listen to this. And the people shall weary themselves for nothing. Well, what amounts to nothing? Very vanity, it says here. Think about it. Think about it. God has sealed the fate that we all must live and die by... Hmm, the observations that can only be made by Solomon in the only way that he could make it using all his wisdom, all his resources. Because we're also going to find out next week that he also applied his resources to not withhold anything from him. 
to not withhold anything that would make his heart glad. And he didn't, right? And he had the money, the power, the resources. And what did he wind up with? A good test to show him that it's still the same thing. It's still all useless labor and vanity. That's what this life is about. I'm closing here. If you and I are not suffering now, well, life isn't so great anyway. We know it's coming. We know suffering is coming or going, whether it's the end times or whether it's a disease or whether it's a, a, a loss of a job or, or, or whatever it is, okay? And I'm not, being, I'm not saying to be depressed over it. What I'm saying is it is of the Lord that experience on this planet must be, it must be vanity for now. You ever wonder why God never just wiped out Satan at the beginning and stopped all this stuff? Why did he have to put those two trees in front of Adam and Eve after teaching them directly? Why did he do that, knowing full well what would happen? And then we are the, some people might say, innocent recipients of that original sin, which wasn't original, Satan was. Why didn't God just stop it all? Because you and I cannot know a life of ease, which we will have for eternity. That's why the Garden of Eden is a type of heaven. So I came down from heaven. We've talked about that. Okay? It's what's called paradise. Adam and Eve did not know the full value of what they had because they had nothing to compare it to. But guess what? They immediately had a comparison point, a big time, when they got kicked out. And remember, God had to put cherubim in the way because guess where they wanted to go back to? It's the same thing for us. So don't despair, especially when you can be depressed reading this book. But actually, it is part of a big instruction manual that's pretty black and white. There is not a lot of Christian counseling in here. There's not a lot of how God operates in this book. Not really, not, no, not per se. There's not a lot of what man should do and what he shouldn't do. And It's really just a book that shows a human being with plenty of resources and God's wisdom and guidance in an experiment. And by the way, God does that with us too. Sometimes you and I go through things that we don't know why God wants us to go through them. Maybe because you're writing your own little mini book of Ecclesiastes for yourself or for somebody else who has to suffer because you're suffering. Right? I think he wants us also to go through so we can really understand his character. And that's right. All of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. That's, that's the way I look at it. Because if we who needs God if you're living a charmed life? If, Didn't he say that to Israel? Didn't he say that one of the warnings to Israel? Remember, when you're in your land and you prosper, do not forget. <laughs> do not for and remember also, if you look at way on the other end of the book, Revelation, out of the seven letters to the seven churches, what does it say to the church of Laodicea? You have prospered and increased in goods, and you think you have need of nothing. That's why he's saying. You better try some salve to open your eyes. Buy from me. It's, it's the same, right? Nothing changes from one end of the Bible to the other. So anyway, we're done.